You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, our focus this morning will be on verses 60 through 71. I'll be reading verses 41 through 71. John 6, beginning with verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are good. I thank you for this flock. I believe as we've gathered here today, as I look across those who have covenanted together, that these are your sheep. And everyone who is truly yours, I know that their faith will not falter. Because you sustain it. You have created it. And you have kept it. And you will keep it to the end. You lose none of those who are given to you by the Father. Father, all whom you have given to the Son... you also keep in your hand. Sealed by the Spirit, held by the Father on one side and the Son on the other, our salvation is sure. But I'm not so naive as to think there's not a crowd who, whenever it's really pushed, On them, the truth of your word. Father, there may be some who grumble. And we cry out and pray you would have mercy. And bring them to a true knowledge of you. Strip away the veneer. Strip away all the presumptions. The title of disciple having been baptized, calling themselves a Christian, being a member of the church, all of it seemed to be empty and void unless they know Christ and throw themselves completely and trust upon Him and cling to His words as the words of eternal life. And Father, we cry out for any others gathered with us that as we look at these true disciples and these false disciples, that you would also draw them to know you and they would recognize not the work of God simply intellectually, but that it would come to bear upon their hearts and they would forsake all and follow Christ. Bless now the preaching of your word to the saving of souls and the sustaining of those you've saved. In Christ's name, we ask this. Amen. 
In John 6, we've seen a crowd go from eating bread to asking for bread to grumbling about bread. They've eaten a kind of miraculous bread only to then ask for the wrong kind of miraculous bread and grumble about the right kind of miraculous bread. This is because they do not want Jesus for bread. They They don't want Jesus as bread. They want Jesus for bread. But what about the disciples? The sign of the feeding of the 5,000 and the significance of that sign carries not only the crowd, but the disciples on a journey. We know that John wrote this book, he tells us, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he wrote it so recording these specific signs so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you think that this means that this gospel was written primarily for unbelievers then, or even altogether, this is just a book for unbelievers. If that's what you think, you couldn't be more wrong. Yes, it is for that purpose. It's for unbelievers that they might become believers. That's not all that it's for. This book is not only for the kindling of new faith, it is for the strengthening of established faith. It both sparks the fire and sustains the fire of faith. Listen again to chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John gives the purpose of this letter, this, excuse me, this gospel. There's a little detail here that's easily looked over. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples. He did many other signs, and He doesn't say, before the unbelieving world. He did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Here are the disciples and they believe. And they saw all these signs. And now certain of these signs are brought before you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in His name. He did these signs In the presence of his disciples. Now, these certain ones are recorded that you might believe. And it's clear as you're reading through, not only are these written that you might believe, these were originally done that they might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he did them in the presence of his disciples. There were signs they witnessed. We just see one smashed in between the sign and the unpacking of its significance. There is the Fifth sign of Jesus walking on the water. Who saw it? The disciples. And they alone. Jesus does these signs in the presence of His disciples for the same reason that He does them in the presence of unbelievers. For faith. Both the sparking of faith and the strengthening of faith. And the 
the exact same sight that leads to the sparking of faith is the same sight that leads to the strengthening of faith. And that sight is Christ. Saints, do not think John a beginner's course in the Scriptures. It is startling that this gospel is written so that those who don't believe may believe. It's written to spark faith. And yet, this gospel is one of the deepest wells in the Scriptures. It's meant not only to to spark faith, but to strengthen faith. Whenever Jesus saw that large crowd coming towards him. He looks at Philip, addresses him and says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus doesn't just do that fourth sign of feeding the 5,000. He includes the disciples in the acting out of it. We learn from the synoptic gospels that that question was towards all the disciples. So he's addressing Philip as part of the twelve. Where are we to get bread? That this is made clear in John's gospel by Andrew piping in and giving his answer. He felt free to contribute because this is something that concerns all of them. And following the question we read, he said this to test him. We can understand Philip again standing in place for the twelve. He's testing them. He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 6. Jesus is testing Philip. What about Philip is he testing? His faith. Following the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples, no doubt there, referring narrowly to the 12, are witness to Jesus walking on the water, the fifth sign, which is really a triad of signs. He walks on the water, He stills the storm, and immediately they arrive at their destination. So the doing of the fourth sign and the unpacking of its significance is interrupted by the fifth sign. But it only is an interruption if you are exclusively focusing on the journey of the crowd. If you focus on the journey of the faith of the disciples, that fifth sign is no interruption. Mark connects the walking on the water to the feeding of the 5,000, telling us, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Jesus does the fifth sign, walking on the water, stilling the storm. They're astounded. And Mark connects it back to the fourth sign. They didn't understand about the loaves. 
That's why they're astounded. Jesus was not only testing their faith, he was refining their faith. And the results of that refining, see, Mark says they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And now because of the refining by water, the purifying by water, Matthew tells us something of the results of that. Matthew 14, 33, those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. So their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand about the loaves. And now on the other side of that fifth sign of Jesus walking on the water, stealing the sea, arriving at their destination, they make the very confession that the crowd fails to make. But now, here we are after Jesus has unpacked the loaves. He's made clear what they are to understand about the loaves. What is the reaction of the disciples now? Our text opens Answering, when many of his disciples heard it, verse 60, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? It appears they're still hardened. But note, it tells us many of his disciples responded this way. Not all of them. In John, we've noted that there are two kinds of believing. There's believing And then there's believing. In chapter 2, we read that many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. He knew their belief was a spurious belief. Likewise, there are two kinds of following. There's the following that we see in chapter 1 of Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And then there's the following we see in this chapter, verse 2. A large crowd was following Him. So there is faith, and then there's faith. There's following, and then there's following. And there are disciples. And then there are disciples. In this chapter, we see both a crowd who initially looks like disciples. And we see now disciples who come to look like the crowd. In chapter 4, Verses 1 through 2, we read that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So, Jesus' disciples are baptizing disciples. The twelve are baptizing the many, and now many of those many are saying, this is a hard saying. And with this, do they mean it's hard on the mind? Or it's hard on the ears. Do they mean that 
it's difficult to discern or it's difficult to digest. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's hard on the ears. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus replies to them, do you take offense at this? It's unpalatable to them. Jesus understands what they mean. It isn't that they couldn't comprehend it. It's that they couldn't digest it. They couldn't stomach it. And so like the crowds, verse 61, they grumble. Church, grumbling. Damnable grumbling happens not only in the crowds, it happens with disciples. Grumbling happens not only in the world, it happens in the church. I'm not talking about ungrateful, discontent kind of grumbling. That's a serious sin. I'm talking about falling away kind of grumbling. Apostatizing kind of grumbling. And actually, that kind of grumbling can only, apostatizing grumbling can only happen in the church. But I'm talking about, specifically, it's the grumbling of rejecting Jesus. And it can happen, we have special words for it when it happens within the church, like apostatizing, falling away. This is not the grumbling of stalled faith, sputtering faith. This is the grumbling of utter rejection, abandoned faith. It is a grumbling like the crowds, verse 41. This grumbling that the disciples are doing here is just like the grumbling you saw in verse 41. They are grumbling about Him. They are grumbling about Him because He said. They're grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread of life. Jesus not only knows when the crowd grumbles, He knows whenever they grumble. He, He knows this in Himself. There's a conversation going on, hushed tones, grumbling, muttering. He knows it. Don't think that you can safely grumble about Jesus inside the walls of a church. Don't think you can safely grumble about Jesus because you carry the name Christian. Don't think because you call yourself a disciple that somehow that familiarity gives you a pass to grumble about Christ. There are whole churches and whole denominations that exist for the purpose of grumbling about Jesus. They don't like something He said. They don't want to believe this. They don't want to believe that. And so they redefine Jesus so that they can redefine discipleship. They grumble against truth and they shout then their blasphemy. They empty the word disciple and the word Jesus of any significant meaning. And for those who think Jesus' words are hard, who can listen to that? So we'll get rid of that. For those who call themselves Christians, those who call themselves disciples, who grumble against Christ's words, those who think His words are hard, Jesus has hard words words for them. Verses 62 through 65. First he asked them, do you take offense at this? 
Then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? You notice that the if is followed by no explicit then. Then what? If you saw the Son ascending, then what? So, it could be taken two ways. If you saw Him ascended, well, you wouldn't be offended then. You'd be all cheers. I don't think that's what Jesus intends to communicate. Because the flesh profits nothing. If their flesh saw that, they still don't have the Spirit. Some think that Jesus could be referring to the cross. If you take offense at this, wait until you see Him lifted up on the cross. And it's true in John that the cross is not only the climactic expression of Jesus' humiliation, but again and again, and especially you'll see this when we get to the second half of John, chapter 13 onwards, it is the hour of His glorification. It is the beginning of His exaltation as well. But His ascending here that He's speaking of, I do not think can be the cross, because He says, when He ascends to where He was before, He wasn't on the cross before. I think Jesus is saying, if you take offense at me now, oh, you will take offense when the Son of Man comes into His glory and He rules and His Spirit is sent. How you respond right now is not going to change at all whenever the Son is exalted. You won't be accepting of Him then. If you don't receive Christ in His broken body, whenever He ascends as King, from which position He will come to break bodies, which is what you say you want, you won't be happy with Him then if you are not happy with Him now. And so Jesus goes on to give a three-part explanation of the situation as to why it is that they find the saying hard, and it is The same explanation that he gave to the crowd as to why they couldn't believe. First he tells them that it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 3, Unless one is born, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And when Nicodemus voiced his confusion... How can a man be born when he is old? Jesus replied, Truly, truly, I tell you, Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh The flesh is no help at all. Or as the New King James has it, the flesh profits nothing. Erasmus, in his debate with Luther, wasn't dealing exactly with this text, but he was dealing with the sentiment. Indeed, he was dealing with a text in John 15. It would have been better if they were arguing over this text. But it's the same sentiment. Erasmus argued that whenever we read the flesh profits nothing, nothing there means nothing perfectly. So then the flesh can profit a little something, just profits nothing perfectly. To which Luther retorted, a little something 
is not nothing. The flesh profits nothing. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They can be intellectually grasped, but if they are to be grasped with faith and received and trusted in, the only way that comes is by the teaching of the Spirit. Or as Jesus put it, by the hearing and teaching of the Father via the Spirit. So the first word of explanation as as to this situation, they're grumbling, this saying is hard. Jesus says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And then the second explanation he gives is to apply that to them. Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. But this is set up in contrast. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. What's the conclusion? What is Jesus saying? You are in your flesh. The reason you don't believe is because the Spirit is not working. And the reason Jesus could say this of them is because, verse 64, He knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. Jesus not only knows their hearts in real time, verse 61, He knew in Himself that His disciples were grumbling. He knows His people. He knows them from the beginning. He knew from the beginning who those were. And the greater reality underlying this, knowing them from the beginning, is what we were told in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast it out. Jesus knows the difference between a true coming and a false coming because He knows those who were given Him by the Father. And that's why He can pray to the Father in John 17. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. You're reading John 17, it's clear He's talking about those who have been given to Him. And he says, not one of them has been lost. Here you have a myriad of disciples walking away. How can Jesus say, I haven't lost one of them? Because he knows those who were given to him by the Father. And of those given to him, he hasn't lost one. All these that walk away, they weren't given. And he knew that from the beginning. I've guarded them, he said, John 17, 12 again. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. These men do not believe, they walk away, but Jesus doesn't lose them. He was never given these that walk away. So the second hard word of explanation Jesus has is the application of the first. They are in their flesh. Thus they do not believe. And then third, as a summary explanation, Jesus takes them back to the words that He spoke to the crowd, verse 65, and applies it to them. This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Coming to Jesus is a gift that the Father gives. Jesus has just told the crowds, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This same interaction Jesus has just had with the crowd, where the truth of who he is, they followed him, they want to know him, they are earnestly and zealously seeking him, and Jesus presses the truth of who he is before them, and they grumble and they turn away. Jesus is now showing that this same reality can take place within the auspice of those who claim to be disciples. This can happen in the world. This can happen in the church. There are many who follow Jesus for a time and they turn back, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The truth of Christ makes known disciples and disciples. John 8.31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. When we get to John 8, you'll see those Jews had not believed him. They had believed him. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word. This is a hard saying. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. This is why John could later write in his first letter, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. You have the Spirit. And you all have knowledge. You've been spiritually taught. Souls, this is why it's critical that you ask yourself, not just, did I believe? Or, when I came to little learn a little something about who Jesus was, what did I do? Well, I made a profession, walked an aisle, I said a prayer, I was baptized, I joined a church. Do not ask yourself, when I came to learn a little something about Jesus, what did I do? Ask yourself, now, right here, right now, that I've come to learn more about Jesus. Now that I've gotten more of His Word, more of an understanding as the truth of who He is has been pressed upon me again and again and again, what is my response to Him right now? Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do I hear His words and cling to them as the words of eternal life? Where are you right now? Forget anything you're telling yourself about your past. Forget that you call yourself a Christian. Forget that you say you're a member of some church. Forget all of that right now. Do you grumble at his words or do you cling to them? These were disciples. They had been baptized. They could claim, I was baptized by John. I was baptized by Matthew. I was baptized by Peter. I really followed Jesus. I walked in his tracks. I heard him preach. Preach. 
and then they fell away. Ask yourself, not, did I believe? Ask yourself, do you believe? And if you do, you have this promise of eternal life. And so now it is that Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And it's critical that you recognize the tone of that question as informed by everything you've seen so far. Jesus knew from the beginning those who were given to him. This is not a forlorn, despondent, pitiful, pathetic. Do you want to go away as well? Jesus is not a frail pastor like myself or so many who on seeing many of the flock would be devastated. He knew. Those who are walking away, I was never given. I haven't lost one. This is not a despondent question. Why is Jesus asking this question? What's the tone of this question? It's the same tone and same kind of question as he put to Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Do you want to go away as well? He is testing them. So on each side of Jesus explaining the significance of the bread... We have Jesus testing his disciples. And in between these two tests, concerning the fourth sign, you have a fifth sign that only the disciples, only the twelve are privy to. They look completely different from the crowd and the disciples. These twelve who witnessed the fifth sign. They failed the test previously, but now he has brought them purifying that faith. That floundering faith through the troubled waters of Galilee. And on the other side, he tests them again. And what we see is that Jesus keeps those whom he was given. Their faith is faltering, but he strengthens and sustains it. And on the other side, they make this glorious profession. He does not lose those who He has given. None have fallen overboard off the ship of faith, save the son of perdition who was destined. Spurgeon said, The believer, like a man on shipboard, may fall again and again on the deck, but he will never fall overboard. The captain keeps the crew the Father gave to him. The only castaways are stowaways. They were never part of the registered crew given and entrusted to the Son by the Father. Whenever that ship of the church universal ports in heaven, not one name will be unaccounted for. Well, of course it's Peter who answers the question. But he speaks for the twelve. Of course, minus one, as Jesus' caveat will soon make clear. But he answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? He's answering for the twelve. To whom shall we go? You have the words of, of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have nowhere else to go. 
And you and you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus' words may be heavy. They may be hard. They may pierce and open us up and expose. They may illumine, convict. But they are the words of eternal life. And they are true. All else is sand. This alone is bedrock. So rather than offense, the twelve say, You have the words of life. You are the Holy One of God. Peter speaks for the twelve. Jesus answers the twelve. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, one of you is a devil. Jesus, according to his plan to save and keep those given to him by the Father, chooses a devil to be part of the twelve for his plan. That the scripture might be fulfilled, we read earlier. Saints, there are, and always will be until kingdom come, tares among the wheat. There will be antichrists within Christ's body. Never forget, though, that it's all according to God's purpose. According to the purpose who works all things together for good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Those whom He foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Even those who betray our Lord are only used by Him to communicate His faithfulness and love. And so when we experience this, absolutely weep for those who turn away from Christ. But do not fail to trust your Lord. He will lose none of those given to Him by His Father. Weep for them. Rejoice in the unfailing faithfulness of your God. Until kingdom come and all is made manifest to our eyes, there are two kinds of disciples. There are disciples, and then there are disciples. There are disciples who are true, and there are those who prove to be false. What makes the difference between the two? And there are two ways that we can answer that question. First, the The difference between true disciples and false disciples is that false disciples grumble about Christ's words and true disciples say those are the words of eternal life. He is the Holy One of God. Every one of His words, no exceptions. These are His words 
And this is truth. And this is the truth of Him. And we receive it all, no matter how hard, no matter how heavy, no matter how it pierces, no matter how uncomfortable it is. We, we receive it not just when it exposes their sins. We receive it when it exposes our sins. We not only receive it whenever it says truth about God that we love and adore and makes us feel feel loved and gives us comfort and hope. We receive it even when it's hard. and feels like it would break and crush, knowing yet still those are the words of eternal life. Second, underlying that is this. The Father gives a people to His Son. And the Son gives to those people life. Uh, the Spirit gives to those people life. And the Son keeps them. What makes the difference between disciples and disciples? Is our triune God. Who gives. Who saves. Who keeps. Sinner, if that terrifies your heart, take comfort because that is a healthy sign of grace. Yes, you say, but if it's God who makes the difference fundamentally, what can I do? It's the wrong question. Because what it's attempting to do is grumble in a way. Against God's word. What can I do? You're trying to pit revelation of the sovereignty of God against the revelation concerning the responsibility of man. And then grumble against these as they're put forward. The question you should ask yourself in light of this truth is not what can I do? The question you need to ask yourself is what should I do? The crowd said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What should you do? You should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him and all that he said of himself. And if you do so, you will have life eternal. That's what you should do, and that is what God will do should you do that. Go nowhere else. He has the words of life. He is the bread of heaven that came down, that gives His flesh for the life of the world. He was crucified, bearing judgment for sin, so that all who trust in Him might have life eternal. So, Fret not yourself with what you can do. Do right now what you should do. And you have this promise. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you do, if you do that, know that this means not only has the Father given you to the Son. Not only has the Spirit given you life. But also, the Son will keep you and sustain you. He will not lose you. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you that your word sanctifies.
And it sanctifies by strengthening faith in Christ, that Christ is all. He is our sanctification, He's our salvation, He's our glorification. He is the Alpha and the Omega of all our salvation, beginning to end. All is in Him. So, we plead to you that faith by the Word of Christ this morning has not only been sparked, that's our hope, but that it will be also strengthened for the glory of your Son in whom we come to you boldly in prayer asking these things. In Him we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.